Hey there, it's me, Malika Bilal. I'm handing over the mic to my colleague, Patricia Sapka, Managing Business Editor for Al Jazeera Digital, for her to share her take on some stories. Enjoy. I'll be back. South Africa is emerging from its worst unrest since apartheid ended nearly 30 years ago. It was shocking. I don't think I've ever been in a situation like that before. I was witnessing it live. People running with things that they've taken from the stores. Bongankosi Mukunu is 24. He lives in KwaZulu-Natal, the province where violence first erupted last week. It began the supporters of Zuma launching the initial protest. But what started with politics soon became an outlet for deeper grievances, with COVID lockdowns, but also problems that predate the pandemic. The frustrations of the lockdown, the lack of resources, and just general frustration that the government has regarding the needs of the people. Quite a few people just joined, feeling like, okay, I'm voicing out my frustrations. So what are the root causes of the discontent that fueled the riots? Could it happen again? And what can the government do to bring stability back to South Africa and give a future to young people like Makunu? I'm Patricia Sabga, in from Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Like many young South Africans, Bongankosi Makunu is just trying to make a living. I know a lot of young people are unemployed. I know tons of them. He works with an NGO called Youth Capital that tries to find young people work. South Africa's youth unemployment rate ranges from roughly 50 to 75 percent by World Bank measures. And most people need more than one job, he says. Even if you are employed, we need to side hustle so that you can have savings and then use the other one to sustain yourself. I have a day job as a corporate specialist by Pearson, the publisher. Working with NGO was sort of something that I did part-time because I saw the demand in Greytown, my hometown. I'm very passionate about helping young people. Greytown is in KwaZulu-Natal province, where most of the unrest happened last week. Many young people he knows were laid off during the pandemic. Makunu wasn't, but he's had to make plenty of sacrifices to even find work. It was a very, a very big step because it's a two-hour flight to Cape Town and I still need to drive another two hours before I can get to the house. It's very far away from my home, so it's very costly to visit my family. Go, It's almost like starting a new life, but it's something that a lot of us do when we have to. Back in KwaZulu-Natal because of the pandemic, Makuna was caught off guard. But at the same time, he wasn't all that surprised last Monday, July 12th. People started protesting because Zuma was arrested. Jacob Zuma, South Africa's former president. He was jailed for refusing to testify to a commission investigating corruption while he was in office. And then the looting started. There have been people here also looting. They just started looting, breaking in, rioting. Stealing and looting whatever they can see and find. People started burning shops and just destroying the towns. 
The latest situation in KwaZulu-Natal. Let's cross over to our reporter. Another shopping mall lay in ruins in KwaZulu-Natal. The South African National Defense Force has deployed soldiers to KwaZulu-Natal following the ongoing looting and violence in many parts of the country. I live in the township in, in, in Greytown. It's not very far from where it all happened. That's where we reached him, in the township. It's dense with people, overcrowded. There were kids playing outside and there was music in the other house. Before we started the call, I asked them, Ish, can I have a conversation with someone? So give me some space. Obviously, there are a lot of people in, in the township, and mostly as Africans, the black people, because of the results of apartheid. So Makuna was in the township working on the morning of the 12th. I only got to town to see the impact later on the day. People were still looting the shop. The police were still trying to get people to stop, but the crowd was growing larger and larger. There were so many people, the police weren't trying to actively stop them anymore because people were prepared to fight with the police, even though they weren't armed, but they were just blocking the roads, burning the shops. I would say for the most part, it was young people. I mean, it requires some energy to pour it into a store. And because I work with young people, I wanted to see what was happening in my town and what is frustrating people so much. One of the frustrations is the widespread feeling that the government isn't doing enough to help people cope with the financial blow of the pandemic. There was this grant that was implemented by the government when lockdown started, 350 rents grant. That's roughly $25 a month. A lot of young people Makunu knows were living off of it until the government ended it in April. Yes, yes, it stopped. I think it was one of the frustrations that added to all the events that happened. But the job market is really not wide enough to accommodate all the young people. And, and, and there is a thing that we've been facing for a number of years. How many years? You have to go a ways back. My name is Dumat Kabule. I'm a South African economist and financial journalist. So I've got two sides of my career. It's the economic research and financial journalism. Kabuli has a deep understanding of his country's economy and its government. Knowing what he knows, he's actually surprised that last week's unrest didn't happen sooner. In other countries, such unemployment rates would have resulted in a revolution and the overthrow of the government. In South Africa, it hasn't had that kind of impact. It's a mystery as to how this hasn't flared up before. While that may be a mystery, tracing the history of inequality in South Africa isn't. The country was colonized by the Dutch in the 17th century, then by the British in the 19th. That laid the foundation for the system of minority white rule and institutional segregation known as apartheid in the 20th century. Indigenous African, colored mixed race, and Asian, South Africans of Asian descent, we are classified as black in South Africa, and that is 90% of the population, and the white minority is about 10% of the population. After a lot of blood, sacrifice, an international campaign of boycott, divestments and sanctions, and finally, negotiations, apartheid ended in 1994. The apartheid system was finally brought to an end, and Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as South Africa's first ever black president on the 10th of May, 1994. 
Nelson Mandela became the first president of a free, democratic South Africa. But the economy? That was still stuck in the past. Since apartheid, most white people remained relatively wealthy. Economically, things improved for some black people, but not in the shanty towns. So you have, in 1994, when Mandela takes over, you've got this white minority, which has got the living standards of a European country, highly educated, skilled people, and then you've got a black majority of 90% of the population that has got the per capita incomes of a typical third world African country. We've got two economies for health. We've got two economies for education. This is the economy that a democratic South Africa is born into. Stunning inequality, really crushing debt. This is quite a challenge to try to overcome this. Now, international lending institutions like the International Monetary Fund were stepping up with lots of advice. What advice did they give South Africa? That's actually a very good question. So what happened between 1994 and 1996 is a post-apartheid economic boom. The debt situation kind of stabilized itself because the country is growing again. And I argue in South Africa many times that there was no apartheid debt crisis. They got bamboozled by all the advisors that came to South Africa, your IMF, your World Bank, who tried to convince them that you have to stabilize your debt. And then they came up with this policy called GEAR. GEAR. It's an acronym that stands for Growth, Employment and Redistribution. It was supposed to do what it said, grow the economy, create jobs and redistribute wealth. It just didn't work. Kabuli crunched the numbers and not just the narrower ones. He looks at expanded definitions of unemployment and jobs creation. Government implements these slash and burn monetary and fiscal policies. Instead of equalizing the education system, equalizing the health system, they listen to the IMF propaganda, the World Bank propaganda that you've got a high expenditure on education as a percentage of GDP, it's 6%. But they're not looking at the fact that it's a highly unequal education system. Per capita spending on education and health went down between 1996 and 2003. There was no investment in new energy capacity. And there was many things that were done wrong. So they're doing everything the IMF says to do, and it's, it's creating great social harm. So where is the country at that point then? Bottom line, there's a massive increase in unemployment from 4.4 million people to 8 million people. High increase in inequality as well during that period. We've had these destructive austerity policies, this, this slash and burn economics, as you say. Now we're on the doorstep of 2004. They're seeing all of these people out of work. And clearly structural adjustment has just proven incredibly painful. So the government stops its austerity policies. It starts spending into the economy. Every single sector of the economy created jobs, except mining. Then we have what started off as a consumption boom. And then there was a property boom in South Africa. And between 2004 and 2008, we created 3.1 million jobs. And the unemployment rate came from 40.6% to 28.6 or 7%, somewhere there. So the economy grew rapidly during that period, yeah. There was success. But it sounds like from what you described, there were some ticking time bombs in there. Whenever you hear property boom, inevitably you hear boom, you're going to get bust. And sure enough, in 2008, the entire world got a bust. Yeah, the 2008 financial crisis. 
we lost 1 million jobs between December 2008 and March 2010. What we call, what I call the lost decade in South Africa, between 2009, 2010, 2019, we did not recover from this lost decade. Per capita incomes did not increase. So the crisis before the crisis was um, five years of declining GDP per capita. We also had two recessions in two consecutive years in 2018 and 2019. We were heading towards a third recession. And then in 2020, the pandemic arrived. We had only one pandemic control measure, which was the lockdown. We were supposed to have people in the communities tracking down, doing public education, following the clusters, isolating the people who are infected and the people who may be infected, yeah. So those we didn't implement, so we had about 180,000 excess deaths and 2.2 million infections. In March 2020, when the lockdown starts, the number of unemployed people increased by 4.9 million and the unemployment rate went back to where it was, about 40%. We had one of the most severe lockdowns in the world as measured by the Oxford Stringency Index. And it was a brutal lockdown. It decimated the economy. Our GDP collapsed by 7.2% last year and 1.4 million jobs were lost. Now, on top of that, our response in terms of fiscal and monetary policy was inadequate. Now, most countries decide to spend their way out of the crisis and the IMF and the World Bank have warned against premature withdrawal of the stimulus packages. So in February, the government implements austerity policies again. 265 billion rands. I wish I could convert it to dollars. I should have done that for you now. We did the conversion. That's more than $18 billion cut from government spending. And it's huge austerity measures, unprecedented in the post-apartheid period. Slashing, the biggest cut was from public health in the middle of a pandemic. Then from security, the police, 39 billion rands. And they're retrenching 18,000 soldiers. They gave COVID grants money to the people, and then they cut the grants. And then after that, they announced another over-the-top lockdown without a cent allocated to the people who will be affected by the lockdown. And then literally a week or two later, the chaos that erupted in KwaZulu-Natal province. So now we end up where we are last week. You see the country, it is racked by rioting, looting, the worst violence since the apartheid era. It started, however, when former President Jacob Zuma was sent to prison. How much of that unrest do you attribute to anger over Zuma's sentencing as opposed to anger over the lockdowns and all of the economic hardships that, that you've just described? Yes, that's a very good question. So what, what I say is that we've, we had these overlapping and intersecting crises. There was corruption during um, Jacob Zuma's period, and there was proximity to a family called the Guptas from India. But if you add up the, the number of the corruption that was done by the Gupta family, it was a fraction of what happened in the rest of the economy in terms of the austerity policies. Kabuli points to infighting within the ANC, the ruling party, the African National Congress. One faction is corralled around Zuma, the other around current President Cyril Ramaphosa. 
But none of these factions, whatever they're debating, has got nothing to do with the crisis in the South African economy, how to address unemployment, poverty, and inequality. So the spontaneous uprising is no longer about Zuma, even though there's a lot of sympathy for right or wrong towards Zuma, but it morphs beyond Zuma and it becomes about the socioeconomic conditions in this country. Anybody who saw the queues of people in post offices in South Africa who used to queue for that COVID grant, which was, it gave you a side of the desperation of South African people that so many people would queue for $25. And at the same time, it, you saw the people looting for food. South Africa is now looking at more food shortages. So what would Kabuli like the government to do? The first thing you do is a humanitarian response, you know, and... Um, you go and provide income to the people affected by the earthquake and you might provide medical assistance, but it's a humanitarian response. And only after the humanitarian response do you start rebuilding the city or the economy. Now in South Africa, we've got an immediate humanitarian crisis and many civil society organizations are saying there must be a basic income grant. There was a debate between the president and civil society activists. Speaker after speaker called for this basic income grant. And then after that, how are we going to rebuild this economy? How are we going to create jobs? According to my calculation, we need to create 17 million jobs by 2030 to achieve full employment. We can exit coal at our energy company and exit coal at our petrochemicals company called Cecil, and we can create many more jobs than we destroy. There's so many things we can do in terms of that. So we need like a few catalytic projects that are going to drive the people and this economy until it gets its own momentum forward. But he's not very hopeful that will happen. I have access to many of the decision makers in South Africa and I listen to them. I'm part of some of their groups and they're living in a parallel universe. There's social distance there's a few wealthy South Africans, middle-class South Africans who just, you know, they look down upon poor people and there's a distance between them, their black people, and the ordinary people on the ground. If nothing happens, they're going to go back to normal. And normal is pretty grim. I was talking to my two sisters and the one sister lives in an affluent neighborhood in KwaZulu-Natal and she was saying to me that the husband had to go and forage for food. There was food shortages on the rich South Africans. And then my other sister went with her daughter to a feeding scheme in one of the poorest townships of South African, Alex. And she talked about the hunger that the people are experiencing there. About 10 million people um, were hungry during the March of April and May. Give us a sense of what it's like right now. Have the roads opened again? Is food reaching where it needs to? Our businesses are... Are they digging out? Are they cleaning up? Or are tensions still running really high? What's the pulse of the nation right now? I was talking to the sister, I have a sister, and she was telling me that, you know, we now have some kind of a peace at the moment, but we don't trust this peace. We believe it could be the calm before the storm because the constitutional court was supposed to rule on Jacob Zuma. And depending on what the constitutional court rules, it could flare up again. The province is on a knife edge. Anything could trigger another flare-up of the situation. Remember, Kabuli says if this were any other country, there would have been a revolution already. He just doesn't understand why in South Africa it hasn't happened yet. I, I don't know. 
I don't know what the reason is, and I, I can't come up with an explanation. I can only say it's a matter of time before this whole situation explodes. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Dina Kesbe, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilve, Ney Alvarez, myself, Patricia Sabga, and the host of The Take, Malika Bilal, who I'm filling in for this week. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan, our story editor is Tom Fenton, and our executive producer is Stacey Samuel. And we want to offer a special thanks to Youth Capital South Africa, New Frame, a social justice media publication in Johannesburg, Monica Langen-Persad, and Greg Arde. We'll be back. <laughs>